Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week's interview is with Sarah Stremming, an internationally known dog behavior consultant with a special niche working with sports dogs. She consults at the Cognitive Canine, teaches online courses on dog behavior, and hosts the Cog Dog Radio podcast. I sat down with Sarah to talk about agility dogs, particularly the ubiquitous Border Collie, and what is going on with them in terms of health and behavioral issues. If you're looking for your next agility prospect, this interview is a must-listen. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I I have to say it's particularly exciting because your podcast is one of my top favorite podcasts of all time, so I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Jessica. That's really kind of you to say. I of all time. I mean, that's 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 pretty big. <laughs> I mean, I can say that now, right? But who knows what's going to happen in the future? So you better keep working. On <laughs> that's it. right. As of <laughs> keep, today, you have to keep on top of it. <laughs> Will do. All right. Awesome. So um, obviously, first most difficult question: Can you tell us about the dogs in your life? I know you have a bunch of dogs, and some of them who live with you are more yours, and some of them are a little bit less yours. So totally up to you which ones you want to talk about. Well, as of today, there are eight in my house. Um, Two of them are what I would say mine in quotations. And then let's see, make sure I do math right. Five of them are my partner Leslie's. And then one is a puppy that I'm raising for my sister. So... My two are Iggy, who is an 11 and a half year old Border Collie, and Felix, who's a five year old Border Collie. And then Leslie has, I'm gonna do the math wrong, she has four Border Collies and one Australian Shepherd. And the puppy I'm raising for my sister is a Pug Boston Cross. (laughs) Oh, there is Boston in there, I didn't realize, yeah. Yes, she is a Pug Boston Cross. So, um, that's what we've got. That's what we've got today. When you sent me that picture, I said that's a really funny looking border collie. I was really proud of right. myself for that. Joke. <laughs> she, I thought I was she hilarious. Is. <laughs> and she'll tell you she is a border collie yeah. as of now. Yes. So she's good role she models. Is. That's right. Um, all right. And you have a somewhat unusual job. You're not exactly an agility trainer and you're not exactly a behavior consultant. I'd say maybe you're more like an, a behavior consultant. But can you tell us a little bit about sort of what your, your niche is and how you got there? Yeah, I used to really be both those things. So I used to go into people's homes and work with them on behavior problems um, in their dogs. And then I also did used to teach agility classes um, as well as pet dog training classes. And now I'm very fortunate that the majority of my work is virtual. And so and that happened before COVID. So I'm really fortunate in that (laughs) regard. Um, So I teach online classes, but the bulk of my business is private behavior consulting with sport dogs and their owners. And that is 
something that came about because I was doing both things. So because I was I was working in pet dog behavior and then I was also teaching agility and I was really active in the sport of dog agility as well as obedience. Um, and I started to get all of these clients whose dogs had problems kind of beyond you know, getting their front cross right or getting that weave pull entry right. And so my little collection of people who came to me for agility training were not coming to me for the agility training. They were coming to me because I could help them with those other pieces, which is definitely my strength. Um, I don't know why anybody ever listened to me when it came to agility training or handling, but um, they did. So, and I think it was because their dogs had those issues. So that's where the niche kind of grew from. And I love working with sport people. And so, cause I think we've got, we got stuff in common so we can really talk um, on the same level and they're just really dedicated people. And I think any pet dog trainer listening is gonna say, yeah, if I could change one thing about my clientele, it would be that they were really gung-ho and wanted to be dog trainers and wanted to work harder on that stuff. Um, the sport people, that's not a problem. They like training. They like doing stuff with their dogs already. And so it makes a really good partnership between the clientele and myself. They can be very intense. <laughs> yes. So can I. So I yes. we, we, oh, we can too. get on the same page, <laughs> oh, right? Me too. Yeah. Right. Yes. So... Um, so then you have, we have the, the age old question of there's some amount of genetics leading into these problems that you're dealing with in dogs. And then there's some amount of environment. And you were talking about how fantastic, uh, these owners are, but it doesn't mean they're always doing everything for their dogs. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how there's that sort of genetic environment balance in these problems that you see. Yeah. And I wish I knew what what all was what so basically I mean, I i'm love... gonna figure that out for you so don't worry like yeah I'm gonna that's get that your done. job yeah and, and I, I expect that yeah in a year soon. in a year maybe, um, yes talks. i expect that talks. soon what are you even doing right now i mean you have nothing <laughs> I should going be working on, but... on that like, my my i actually my laptop was running a calculation that would help get you closer to that purpose and i stopped it so that i could do this, this interview because i didn't what are you thinking i didn't want the fan running during the interview <laughs> so you are delaying it right now <laughs> oh my goodness so i like to look at it um the way that our friend hannah brannigan looks at it she says when you are looking for a puppy before you have the puppy assume everything is genetic right down to the way the dog gates in healing whether or not they hold their head a certain way, like assume everything is genetic before you get it. And then after you've got it, assume nothing is. Assume everything's on you. That is how I try to look at things. But it doesn't mean that I'm not fascinated by kind of both components and how they work together. I really am. And I have certainly seen, I have a lot of anecdotal trends in my stored in my head um, through working with the sport dog community. And so certainly... In particular, my breed is Border Collies. Border Collies tend to be, they are the most popular agility breed worldwide. Um, and they're also a really popular obedience breed worldwide. And fly ball, everything. I mean, any sport you're looking at, Border Collies tend to dominate. And the same things that make them really wonderful at sports tend to be the same things, I think, that make life hard for them. And 
it's just like me like I'm an entrepreneur and I'm an intense person and that does not come without mental health concerns <laughs> and so um, I think of the dogs that I work with like that like they're just they're extra they're intense they all of the things that make them amazing are the things that make life a little bit hard for them and so there's always a combination of factors but what's particularly I think of interest to your listeners might be the things that we are selecting for when we breed these dogs for sports rather than their original purpose um, which is herding sheep or cattle and then also versus breeding them for the confirmation ring so we have kind of three distinct types in border collies and then you know beyond that we can split each category into types also but i'm going to say that there's, there's kind of three types there's confirmation type sport type and then um, herding type, so working type. And the only type that I have never had in my house is the confirmation type. So I definitely have a combination of the other two. And then I also have dogs that are a combination of the other two. Um, but what gets interesting to me is the differences between these types and the problems that people show up with because I have all three types in my clientele. <laughs> I have them frequently. Um, and so the problem, but the problems are different and it's fascinating actually, the problem, the different problems that we have. And so we have to say that there's a genetic, there's gotta be genetic components there because anytime something runs in a type or a line, you could say there's a genetic component sure. with, with, some good, with some good confidence. And so I don't know but I can certainly pick out and point out um, things that that tend to be consistent. So I actually, I'm not sure if I answered your original question because I just talked for ever. But remember at this point what my original question was, but that's cool. The goal here is just to get you talking about stuff that you care about. <laughs> well, so that wasn't hard. <laughs> I've done that. Um, yeah. So 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 problems uh, that run in lines for sure, and some of the the sort of subtle stuff that you're talking about is some of the hardest stuff to pin down genetically. Not just for researchers like myself, but for breeders who are like, well, it yeah. shows up here, and then it doesn't show up there, and it's sort of so hard to you know to figure out which dogs to breed. Because in theory, you breed a world team dog to another world team dog. And you're going to get and the traits that make a world team dog, the in world theory. the team gene is Mendelian, and so it's yes. recessive. But if you have yeah. two world team but dogs... You, so, but if you double you know up on it, sure. I mean... It's fixed. <laughs> done. Okay, we're joking, everybody. Just Guys, we're joking. Super clear. Super clear on uh, the world team gene. That would be a great gene to find. I'd do well if I found that gene. Anyways, so what are... It's true. What are some of the problems that you see in Border Collies? So it, it is, it's certainly in sport dogs across the board and not just border collies, although my clientele is heavily border collie. Um, one of the things that I see is behaviors that get labeled as kind of over arousal behaviors. So, or arousal behaviors in general. So usually I think that that label is incorrect, but that is the label that is used. Um, these behaviors look like barking, at the handler, biting at the handler, jumping at the handler. Um, this is one of those things that I find is different 
in your more true herding bred, working bred versus sport bred. And I'm going to define those for a second as herding bred is going to be the parents are actually working or trialing on sheep. So not just from working lines. And I put that in quotations because everybody like they're all from working lines. You guys, <laughs> um, they all all the sport dogs go back at some point to dogs that work sheep. So um, I'm going to say direct relatives are actively working stock. So we've got those dogs and then we've got the more sport bred dogs, which may be might be a couple generations removed from the farm. Maybe one of the parents is working stock and the other one is not. Um, the more sporty they are, the more um, handler directed a lot of their behaviors, their problematic behaviors tend to be, versus um, your dogs that, I've, we've got a couple of dogs in my house who are straight off the ranch. None of their parents or siblings have done sports. Um, if those dogs are going to show a problem behavior, it's going to be more outrun-like. It is going to be that I'm now going to move away from you. So I'm going to move away from the pressure. Or I'm going to move away and then come in front of you and almost head you off. Um, those dogs tend to be less kind of physical with their people. I could speculate forever as to why that is. I think that it has a lot to do with the toy play types of behaviors that we're selecting for in sport dogs. It is not actually easy to get um, a true working type dog hot as hot on toys that the way that agility people tend to play with toys. Most of them will fetch a chuck it ball until they die, but the really intense um, physical tug play that agility handlers tend to do with their dogs, a lot of those dogs don't care for. Um, so anyway, I think that we've kind of produced dogs that are a little bit more comfortable with the physicality of um, kind of pushing into their owner's space. One is not better than the other, you guys. They're both problems and they're both hard to fix. <laughs> so it's kind of which, what I always say to people when they're looking for a border collie is they're all weird. Which weird do you like? <laughs> which weird are you into? Um, because they're all weird. So I tend to see dogs that as a response to frustration, and then I'm going to further categorize that as frustration would be the response that happens when expected reinforcement or information does not show up. Information we could categorize as reinforcement, but I like to get very clear about what I'm talking about. So if you there's a lapse in information or a lapse in reinforcement when the dog expected one of those things you then see these problematic behaviors and so just depending on who they are the behavior could come out as i'm going to now run around three jumps before coming back to you or it could come out i'm going to jump at you and bite you or bark at you and it can get as weird as, I mean, I've had client dogs that attacked the teeter, attacked tunnels, attacked tunnel bags. So directing their aggression on something else instead of the handler can definitely happen. And then plenty of dogs that directed at the dog, the dog that's trying to come in the ring as well. <laughs> um, and so these problems show up specifically in agility and then I am called in to fix them. In obedience, they show up too. So I definitely have more and more of a competitive obedience clientele as I kind of get 
as that as word kind of spreads that I do that because I haven't competed in obedience for a long time. The last time I stepped in the obedience ring was about six years ago. Um, I do train it actively every day. <laughs> but, but obedience trials are a little hard for me. So um, I mean, you got to dress up like that's first of all, you have to wear reasonable clothing. You like you can't jeans. you can't wear like you. I mean, right. Like you can. But you're not like you're supposed to look kind of nice. And then also. Yeah. Right. And then also just it's a it's a tough environment going from agility to obedience. Yeah, it's a big change. It's yeah. very different. I'm looking into rally right now for that reason, because I'm like, rally it's a nice soft entry yeah, point. They're a little more chill. Soft entry point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was why rally was born. Obedience yes. is like dying and everyone's like, <laughs> what can we do? How could it be? Um, yeah, more mellow. <laughs> and I love obedience because I love precision and I, lo- I love it. So I train it and train it and train it and then force myself to go to a trial like every five years. Um, But I'm getting more and more of an obedience clientele and the behaviors are similar. So I've got a client whose dog bites on healing. So jumps up and bites her. That is basically a point every time that happens. So you can actually point out (laughs) on that. Just a point? (laughs) Well, it's one point every time. Unless it was like if he was bloodying her, she'd get excused. But basically he jumps up and kind of mouths at her. And like that's a point for every step. And now when you think about every step of healing, I mean, you're in trouble. Especially my obedience clientele tend to be very high level obedience competitors. They are not trying to get a title. They're trying to win. They're trying to get a notch. So if you're going to lose two points even on a run on biting you're losing that first place that you have to get so um we see some of those behaviors we also see social concerns um meaning like ooh, the judge is kind of scary and weird um which they are that's real the dog is not wrong um i mean they're standing there staring at you and following you around the room with a clipboard they're (laughs) They're like taking notes on you (laughs) they're taking they're literally judging you um and then they got to, like, stand over the dog, touch the dog. Sure. Like, there's a lot of things that are hard in obedience as far as the person is concerned. And then you typically have a lot of stressed out dogs in that environment. So that's also hard to deal with. Border Collie's another kind of, I think, big thing about them that we're not going to change unless we actually change them, which we don't actually want to do, is that their ease of socialization is low. So their acceptance of new people and new dogs and novelty in general is hard for them. That's not something they're gonna be good at. And again, they're me, entrepreneur, intense, weird personality, new things are hard, new people are hard, (laughs) new places are hard. Um, And so there's a lot of things that we can do to help them in puppy raising and in breeding, but like it isn't overall gonna change. So we need to then have training and behavior solutions to help them to cope with the environments that we expect them to be in. And I mean, we expect, we expect so much. Like we'll go back to that world team gene. Let's talk about, I went to world championships last year and watched. Um, I can't imagine a more intense environment for a dog to compete in. I really can't. And then they had to get on a plane. They had to (laughs) to fly in the belly of a plane to get there. It's insane. I was at a nose work trial last weekend and we were, 
you know, standing and waiting for our turn. And my dog was like, why are we standing here? And I was thinking, dude, if we were in an agility trial, there would be another dog right behind you with its, mm-hmm. its nose would be in your tail. And there'd be another dog behind that. And they would all be hyper as hell and barking. And there'd be a dog in front of you running around the ring. The teeter would be slamming. And the it's same really thing would be hard. happening one ring over. It is sensory overload. And these are sensitive dogs when it comes to sensory input and then we're literally putting them in loud intense crazy i mean you're dropping them basically in a rave or frat party i mean it's just a nightmare right yeah and then we actually rely on their just unflappable desire to work to override those things rather than actively teaching them yeah how to deal with those things the majority of people are just relying on the fact that the dog would die before they would stop working. And I actually think that's why they're the number one sport breed, not any other reason, because most of them will. They're very worky. I like the workiness a lot. The workiness myself. is the most attractive quality. Yeah, it's really nice. It just comes with all the other crap. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so for people who want to work on the environmental side of that, I will refer you to Sarah's excellent podcast uh cog dog radio and she also has classes so we'll at the end of this we'll have information on how to find all of that but so let's however focus on the genetics now since it's this yeah. is more of a, a breeding podcast so and we were just talking about the the hellish noise of an agility trial which i find challenging and i know i've heard you say that sound sensitivity is a big issue in the the border collie breed oh jessica it is in my opinion the most insidious genetic problem that we have and i'm gonna i put it above epilepsy and that a lot of people i think would would say i'm wrong would say that's because i have i'm knocking on all the wood in my room not experienced that yet um but my and dog I said, just yet. Sat up. you didn't hear that i, I had headphones on probably i right so i say yet because epilepsy if i have this breed for the next however long, which I intend to, that will happen to me at some point because yeah. it's everywhere and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute, but noise phobia, noise sensitivity, noise reactivity, there's a lot of different names, noise aversion. Nobody can kind of agree on what to call it. We know generally what we're talking about is in my mind, the biggest problem that we have because it is in virtually every single line uh, Dr. Karen Overall, who I interviewed on my podcast about this issue, speculates that 80% of the breed is affected. Um, I mean, I think they're probably all affected at some level. Like, I'd say that's what I think. So, I think yeah. 80% are clinical. Exactly. is kind of what she's is what she's exactly. saying. Whereas, it's actually a trait that they've all got, and it actually makes sense if you've ever seen a, a working sheepdog trial. So, not like an AKC herding trial, but a true working sheepdog trial. I probably just irritated a bunch of people. Um, it's fine. Go to a working sheepdog trial. You will see the difference. Um, I like to, there's one where I live, the, the Vashon sheepdog trial that I was fortunate to get to go to pre-COVID. So um, we're talking about huge, vast expanses of space that that dog has got to hear a whistle across. And has got to care about that whistle. And it's across. on YouTube too. So if you can't get to a yes, sheepdog you can, trial, you don't you have can to go. Easily if you can go. go, I encourage you to go because it's <laughs> phenomenal. But truly, it's on you. Yes, you can see it. So that makes sense, right? That they would have extra sensitivity to sound. 
And then they've got this workiness that helps them override any fears that that might induce. And it helps them focus on, so, so I think I have sound sensitivity, right? And so I, I absolutely do. Right. I and would so, qualify myself as sure. noise sensitive. And yeah, so I one would. of the things that I find is that I cannot stop listening to a sound. And it makes my husband crazy. So my husband's musical. And so we'll be watching TV and they'll be playing some music on the TV and it'll remind him of some other song. And he'll start singing another song while the effing song is on the TV at no. the same time, Right. And like he doesn't get why this is a problem for me, and this I is, literally so this, like my head's gonna explode. I'm and, and this like, happens every day <laughs> in there, my house. Also, they're hitting him like you have to stop. You have to stop talking now. Every day in my house, I will be listening to a podcast in one room, and Leslie will walk in and she will have a podcast on her phone, and neither of us are wearing headphones because we're mm-hmm. just in our house, and I have to pause mine immediately. I can't even deal with it. I have to pause mine immediately because it will give me a rage blackout (laughs) to try to have them both go over. So I'm absolutely exactly the same. I also have, I also experience chronic pain and it is associated with that. So if I'm having a really high pain day, I hear noises that I wouldn't hear normally. I mean, we could go off about that, about how I well, think that more more dogs than anybody understands probably also experience chronic pain, and that's responsible for well, well, some of the behavior problems know, that we see. I have this um, border collie that I'm still trying to stabilize. I got him yes. uh, some number of months ago um, from a shelter uh, puppy mill initially. So, and he had he has intense noise sensitivity, which he just he can't cope with chipmunk sounds, of which we have quite a few. Um, yeah, and it's almost like he has picked that yeah. as his thing to yeah. uh, to obsess on. It would have been something else. It would have been, it would have been so, exactly. It's just that in your environment, there's that's a lot of those. Yeah. So that's what he picked out. Yeah, and um, and I and I have gradually come to realize that he has GI pain, and that when yeah. he, and it's amazing that when he has the GI pain, sometimes the chipmunks. So I don't know if you guys know this, guys, because you don't focus on chipmunks the way I do, I imagine. But in the last six <laughs> months, I've started learning a lot about chipmunk sounds. And sometimes the chipmunks will start going just like, tick, 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 and they'll do it for like two minutes straight. And Fitz will have a meltdown and he'll just be like, I can't cope if he's having a bad pain day. If he's yeah. having an okay pain day, he's like, oh, that's really annoying. And I'm like, okay, buddy, why don't I throw a ball for you? And he's like, okay, let's do that instead. So just like the difference between whether he has pain on board as well or not is incredible. Absolutely. And I think that I unfortunately understand that better than I want to, but um, it's something that I observe. I mean, kind of across the board. And they have also, there are studies that have linked the increase in sound sensitivity later in life in so many dogs to arthritic pain. Mm, Interesting. Which totally makes sense. So I do think that noise phobia which to me i'm gonna call it a noise i'm gonna call it noise phobia if it presents classically like a phobia which is essentially debilitating rather than just noise reactivity so like i've got um five nope six border collies in this house there's six border collies in this house one is full on deaf he's 14 years old so i'm not gonna call i'm not gonna count him but also he was the least reactive to noise of any of our dogs basically his whole life. I've got Stig. Stig is nine. And if I make a loud noise, drop something, whatever, he's certainly going to notice. He's certainly going to react. He may even get up and leave, but he is not going to have a panic attack, even if there's a fireworks um, show happening. And that's fascinating when I put that up against... um, 
Iggy, who's 11 and a half, who didn't present with any kind of noise reactivity at all until she was about seven years old and there was a traumatic noise event in her life. Um, she has decided the Instant Pot is scary. She wants to be with me all the time. She's a recovered separation anxiety dog, so um, she doesn't like to be in a different room from me if she if she can stand it. But if I'm cooking and I'm using the Instant Pot, she goes in the other room. And you know, then yes, if there are fireworks, she will panic. If there are gunshots, she will panic. Um, and so they're definitely like, all of them are going to notice noise. None of them are going to be that dog that doesn't notice the Instant Pot. The problem is when they start to extrapolate it to everything. So they, so if Iggy hears a beep somewhere else, maybe on my computer, I was listening, I was watching a client video and I have all of my clients use timers in their training so they don't go too long. And my client got this timer that's this really loud, obnoxious beep, which she apologized for, but she doesn't have border collies. <laughs> so she didn't know that this was going to cause a panic attack in my office. Um, and so it's just really, to me, it is fascinating when it happens on a debilitating level. And it has never been a problem. It was never a problem for her, competitively speaking. Um, but it is a problem for a lot of my clients' dogs, competitively speaking. I definitely, I have more than one Border Collie client that cannot compete indoors, period. Because the acoustics are just too hard for them to deal with. The noise is just too hard for them to deal with. Whereas outside, they can. They can do it. Um, and it happens so often and it happens in so many dogs that, gosh, I just wish that this was something we were looking at a little bit closer as Border Collie enthusiasts and Border Collie breeders. When I talk to people about it, they tend to say, oh, that's not a problem. And then if I dig deeper, I find that actually they're probably, it is a problem on the level that maybe it's a problem for Iggy. Um, it's just not a problem in competing. So it's maybe not noticed. And it's normalized, or, right? Yeah, or, or maybe it's a problem for the dog when they're on the airplane, but I'm not with them when they're on the airplane. So I just plan to get to Europe two days ahead of time so my dog can recover from the plane ride before we compete. I mean, things like that are totally normalized. And so um, it's, to me, it's too normalized. It's not talked about enough. And we also have to like decide what's acceptable and what's not because it exists in most of them. But like if your dog walks into, I'm remembering my very first Border Collie, um, we walked into an obedience trial once and it was this huge warehousey type building and he just suddenly flattened and was like, I can't deal with the acoustics in here. And at the time, I knew it was about noise, but I didn't know, I guess I didn't know enough to say, to go, oh, that's the issue. That's what we have to attack. I just knew that he was afraid of thunder and that sometimes if a noise happened in class, he would freak out. Like I was in an obedience, a group class once and somebody decided to whip out a staple gun and start working on a project in the building and my poor dog all over you know, fully panicked and needed to run to the car yeah and the attitude in the obedience world then and probably now is that he had to work through it yeah um you know that kind of thing so it's just it's a problem it's a huge problem this breed it's way too normalized 
and it's not talked about on an honest enough level, which I'm sure as we will get into is kind of the problem mm-hmm. um, when it comes to breeding these guys. But yeah, noise, noise sensitivity, noise phobia, I think is just by sheer numbers, the biggest problem we have. It's a, it's a big tangle um, with dog breeding. A lot of the time I like to say it's not a scientific problem how to breed a healthy dog. It's a social problem. In this case, it is a bit of a scientific problem as well, I suspect, so yeah. helpfully, because as you said, it's probably the case that exactly what we're breeding for, that attention to us, that ability to yep. work at distances, that yep. sensitivity, is probably exactly the same trait that goes hand in hand. Yep. Um, and that and that as you breed away from the sound sensitivity, it may be that you're also breeding away from some things that you do want. You may not be able to piece them out. Unlike, you know, a lot of the other issues that we talk about where it's like, these dogs are great except for all the cancer that they get. Well, they're not great for the same reasons as getting cancer. Those are two separate things that could be pieced apart. Um, But this is going to be a much, a much harder thing to do, which means that it's even more important to talk about it and really address what we're willing to accept. Right. I think so. I think so. So, all right. Well, so you mentioned epilepsy. So what do you think? (laughs) The other fun one, right? Probably the second most insidious problem that we have, I I think, um, simply because of how devastating it often is. And I've now spoken to several neurologists who feel as though idiopathic epilepsy in the border collie specifically is the hardest for them to control. Mm. Um, So that's more than one neurologist unprompted saying that. Uh, I can't say that that has any kind of um, actual hard data behind it, but it is certainly something that is being expressed by some of these specialists. And it is also something that I've witnessed. So I've had several client dogs um, who turned out to be epileptic and too many times this ends really tragically because it can't get controlled. And I also have, again, just anecdotal (laughs) comorbidity with epilepsy and noise phobia and other anxiety problems, um, which I'm not going to... Brain intensity. We'll say brain intensity. Well, thank you for saying it, because basically I'm going, okay, I'm not anywhere near being a neuroscientist, but... It seems as though yeah. no, but these, all things, that, these things all work together. They're they not do, right? separate so, systems. So the brain has just this balance of activation versus yep. you know, deactivation, right? Up and down. And all of this the stuff that you're talking about is up, is about the neurons right. being activated. Right. And so it's, it's interesting and it's a thing. And um, there's also... Again, this is all speculation, but some people in Border Collies speculate there being links between, essentially, we we talk about Border Collies sometimes as being almost on the autism spectrum. Like, if we could say that about them, which we can't technically say that about them, it's not really fair um, to say that because we can't talk to them about their experiences and, and those kinds of things. But, um, and it isn't the same as maybe like a child, but there are a lot of these really similar traits that go with, um, kind of autism spectrum disorders 
the things that border collies do and have an experience. And there is hard data in humans on increased risk of epilepsy in people with autism. And so again, I don't pretend to know any answers, but that seems like a huge red flag to me as far as these behaviors that happen and then this increased risk. When it comes to epilepsy, we don't we don't know. We know that it's um, polygenic. We know that we we feel like it's coming from a lot of different places, which is why we can't identify. You know, it's why we can't just have Embark or one of these you know companies just identify it and be like, yep, this dog, this the dog is positive, gene. right? Yes. The epilepsy gene has, has been be nice. found. Yeah, that'd be nice. That's not happening because no. it doesn't. It seems to not work like that. What I really feel like we could do, though, is actually utilize a database. There are several databases for epilepsy. They only work if people use them. Um, So that would be one way to go. Every single time I buy a Border Collie, I ask about epilepsy, of course. And I tend to not buy dogs from people who I think are withholding information from me. So I trust it when they tell me, not that I'm aware of. And also I asked these two people who own these dogs and not that they're aware of. And that's like the best we got right now. And that's not good enough. Saying not that I'm aware of isn't good enough. You know what I'd rather? So I, you know, people talk about buying a dog and they go, okay, well, in this pedigree, in this five generation pedigree, there's epilepsy and here it is. I would almost prefer that to not that I'm aware of, right? Because now I can say, well, if it showed up once in five generations, I'm so much more comfortable with that than... Not that I, not that I know. Well, because not you know? that I'm aware of means it certainly did show up at least once in five generations. We don't know how close. Because it probably it did. Really I mean, sure and it did. right because it's everywhere. Anybody tells you there isn't epilepsy in their lines, isn't aware of how this problem actually works, because it's in all the lines. It's everywhere. If it wouldn't be as big of a problem if it weren't everywhere. And we can't test for it. So it so we rely on the honesty and the integrity of everybody involved. And Therein that's where breeding is a social yes. problem and, and not just a science problem. problem. And it's and also to make it super clear that it's not that there are these horrible people coming and breeding border collies Mm-mm. and saying Okay, no I'm going to do this and I'm going to lie. I like lying and I'm definitely going to lie about yeah. the epilepsy. Right. I don't think anybody is actively lying. I think people are um, sometimes interpreting information in a way that suits them. But I, I don't think, like, I don't think I've been lied to as a buyer. I think I've, I think sometimes information has been withheld. Um when it comes to epilepsy, I don't think a single one of these breeders lied. I think that they all told me the truth as they know it. I don't think, and I also know for sure that nobody, that it's every breeder of this breed's worst nightmare to produce. I mean, we talked we on the FTC Facebook group, we talked about it a little bit, and a couple of the Border Collie breeders on there who I really respect said, I haven't produced it yet, and I think if I did, I would quit. I would walk away. I couldn't do this again. I would be too devastated. Um, that's a problem too, <laughs> actually. Yeah, they're, because they're good breeders. They're great breeders and we need them and we need their good work. 
So I think that this kind of black stain that exists on any breeder who is known to have produced epilepsy at any given time, that in and of itself is a problem. If a breeder is standing up and saying, I produced it, here's where, here are the dogs involved, and here's what I did about it, that's what you should actually be seeking out. Right, we should applaud as that. a breeder. Yes, we should applaud that. So I don't know how much you can say about what sort of you've observed about what actually happens when a breeder comes out and <laughs> well, says... Here's what, well, what actually happens is that everybody, you know, then this this breeder list on... I mean, Facebook is full of these groups, right? Where people go, hey, I'm looking for a breeder of Border Collies. What do you think about XYZ? And everybody goes, epilepsy. There's epilepsy. When you guys, there's epilepsy everywhere. So what I care about is not whether or not you've produced epilepsy before. What I care about is what you did about it. And what I care about is your integrity when it comes to it. Um, and if you're producing it, just like I said, that it's not something I've experienced yet, but that I accept that the, that yet is accurate. And I accept that it will happen at some point because I plan to have this breed for better or worse for a long time. Um, and so also as a breeder, you should, if you haven't produced it yet, embrace that word yet, because you will, and know what your plan is for when you do. Because maybe if you have one litter every five years <laughs> for 20 years, you won't, maybe. But if you're, what we think of as a breeder, which is somebody who's kind of actively involved in breeding and looking to produce more dogs and looking to improve lines, et cetera, et cetera, you're probably going to produce it at some point. And what matters is what you plan to do about it. And too often, honesty is completely punished. And we said off air, which was the perfect analogy you said, it's like punishing a growl. Yes. When you punish a dog that is growling, all you will do is break the growl, not the bite. The bite will still exist and you will have no warning attached to it. So when you attack a breeder for coming out and saying, I produce this problem and this is what I'm doing about it, you punish that breeder into not breeding anymore or worse, you punish that breeder into silence um, and lying and, you know, dishonesty, things like that, because... And it, and it can be lying to themselves, right? So it's not Oh, I'm going to say right? 100% of the time, they're not actively lying to people. They're dishonest with themselves to avoid that issue in the so future. It's so scary. Because it's terrible. And I feel for them. And I mean, this is me like talking. I'm not a breeder. Um, you know, it's something that I've thought about, but it's not something I've done yet. And, you know, we, I have a couple of males that I think are prospects, but I don't have any girls because there are too many bitches in this house. Let me just tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so and raising a litter, I'm told, is kind of a lot of work. You know, I hear it's well. kind of a full-time job in That's and of itself. That's what I hear. I got and I already have, yeah. like, two of those. Um, so I have full respect for these people, but I also wish that we as a community embraced honesty a little bit more and, you know, reached out to the breeders who are being honest and just say, hey, thank you for that. Um, and hey, I'm interested in buying a dog from you in the future because of your honesty here. So rather than this myth of epilepsy is something that shows up in only some lines with only some breeders who are being careless, it's just not true, you guys. It's everywhere. Yeah, and I can say as someone, so what I what I study 
is what we call the genetics of complex traits. So I'm interested in personality mm. specifically, but complex traits are traits like personality, risk of cancer, risk of epilepsy, where mm. there's definitely a genetic component. We know there's a genetic component, but there's not one or even three or probably even 10 genes. There's probably a lot more than that. And there's the environmental component as well, right? Which yeah. also doesn't mean that you did something wrong <laughs> to raise the dog. Um, right. But it may, you know, who knows what the environmental triggers for epilepsy are? It, you know, and it may be toxins, which is what everybody sort of wants it to be. Because then it's like, well, if you don't do this or that, then it'll be safe. You can control right. it. But it may just be that the dog had some intense experiences and that sort of up to that activation in the brain at a bad time, you know. And also, let's talk about intense experiences. That's all we do to sport dogs. That's literally all we do to sport dogs. So if that's a factor, then everybody in sports is higher risk with their dogs than than a normal person. And so kind of accepting that, understanding that, and moving forward with it rather than, okay, well, then they have to just be a pet. Well, I hate to break it to you guys. They don't want to be. No. So, <laughs> so um, as humans, we are not good at finding the happy medium. We like to no, do. We're the, really not the one or the other, right? That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. So yeah, I think epilepsy is something that I I would like to see more better use of a database or because there's like more than one there should probably be one and we should all probably commit to using it <laughs> and it's going to need a cultural change right and it, need, it, requ- it would require a cultural shift there are a lot yeah. of um there are european countries or european like sweden for instance where you're required to put the dog in the database if they have epilepsy done that's all you have what to ha- what happens if you don't well good question i don't know men, men um, with guns i'm sure that probably met with guns. There are also, you know, there's a lot of, I have a couple of friends in Sweden who, there are a lot of, there's a lot of legislation on dog owning yes, in that's Sweden. True, that's true. There really is. Like, you're not allowed to use a crate, for instance, unless the yeah. dog is traveling. And I don't know about you, but my life would end if there were no crates <laughs> in this house. <laughs> so things like that, I don't know what happens to you, but I you're mean, supposed to. One of my dogs would never get to eat if there were no crates yeah, in this. Pretty much. That's pretty There's, much how that would happen. I would say that in this country, there would be a higher rate of behavioral euthanasia <laughs> if, if crates were not allowed. <laughs> um, so just interesting things like that. I don't I don't know what happens to you. I, I can't speak to that. But I also know that it is different culturally, too. It's like, well, that's your duty and your responsibility rather yeah. than yeah. I don't have to. Yeah, I don't know how to change the culture, but it does seem like... Um finding ways of sort of pulling together like-minded groups of people to start being like, okay, we're going to support each other and this is how we're going to do it. Um, might be yeah, and maybe, maybe rather than like clutching your pearls over somebody producing <laughs> epilepsy, like clutch your pearls over somebody lying about it. Yeah. Or blaming the owner on it. Like yeah. saying, or saying the neurologist is obviously wrong. Yeah. Like let's get upset about those things rather than the fact that the epilepsy exists in the first place. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So, all right. So border collies can come from sort of ranch lines or they can mm-hmm. come from sport lines. And then we're sort of not talking about the, the confirmation lines as much as you just don't have as much knowledge of them. But I think you do have some knowledge of the sort of landscape of breeders who are producing 
sport dogs. And that's kind of what I'm, what I'm interested in because they should be the place that you'd want to go, right? Because they're theoretically producing the dogs with the goal of them doing the job that you want them to do as opposed to, I know that you have ranch bred dogs, um, mm-hmm. not all of them, but some of them, um, which theoretically shouldn't be the dogs that you want, right? Because they're not being bred for the goal that you want them for. But um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the differences in culture? Sure. And- There's definitely... Um- it's actually 50-50 in my house where they are from. So we've got two ranch dogs, uh, two sport dogs, and one dog that is a, literally a cross between the two. That's five. <laughs> oh, my God. And then there's a rescue we of unknown lineage. Okay. So that's – and I would – And there's your fake Border Collie. Your, uh, and your, then there's your my pug, your flat face. Yeah. yeah, my Bracky Border Collie. Um, yeah. <laughs> so interesting enough i think that you know we have to understand that the ranch dogs were the original dogs that were brought to sport because they were the only dogs that existed so and there was a reason that they were selected and there's a reason that they were good and there is in my opinion no reason that they can't continue to be good and can't continue to be what you want the training and the culture of the sport has changed more in the favor of the sport dogs in a lot of ways, meaning that the sport dogs tend to basically, in my opinion, the sport dogs started to be different when people stopped wanting to do any kind of work to build desire on the part of the dog to do the thing that you want to do. Because you buy a dog that is straight off the ranch, they were born with desire. It was desire to move stock though. So if you aren't going to move stock, you now need to build a little bit of desire to do your sport in them. This is not actually hard to do, but it is a little bit of a lost art. People don't want to do it anymore. They want to um, take the dog out of the crate at the airport and have it latch onto a tug. That's what they want. So we started to breed dogs that were more like that. from, from again, from where I'm standing, these are just kind of my observations, having been in the sport and the breed for 20 years and having watched it change really in that time. Yes, in theory, if you wanna do something with your dog, you wanna look at parents who did that thing. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. There are a lot of really fabulous qualities in a lot of the sport lines that are really fantastic. The ease of socialization tends to be higher. The um, affection towards the human tends to be a little bit higher. So historically we have these dogs that actually don't even live inside. They just go out and they work the sheep and they come home and they go sleep in the barn. Iggy came from a rancher where the dogs didn't live inside. Stig came from a rancher where the dogs didn't live inside. And their level of affection towards the humans reflects that. They're both pretty standoffish. Um, Maybe that's what you like, though. So that's fine to go with that. But the sporty dogs tend to be more needing to be in your skin (laughs) than than not. So that's that's something that we've kind of worked for. Um, And... So what I see, again, like I mentioned, there's a little bit more willing willingness to be physical at the handler. 
they tend the sport dogs tend to be louder they tend to bark more uh border collies are a quiet herding breed they don't move the stock with their voice the way that an aussie does um or sheltie and so they tend to be a little bit quieter barking i think came along with some of the other traits we were breeding for i don't think anybody intentionally picked out barking <laughs> but um it, i think I'll it came throttle them if they did uh, pretty much <laughs> but i think it came with the other traits that we wanted and what's interesting when you're breeding for something like sports which is not an innate kind of quality it's not the same as herding you can put a dog from herding lions down there eight weeks old you put them in a pen with ducks and they immediately start to exhibit herding behaviors same puppy put them on an agility course they're not weaving poles huh. right so like you know fascinating right so um what you're selecting for is really a dog that fits into the training that you are going to be doing and our agility culture has really specific kind of training trends and needs. And so what I think we've done with the sport bred dogs for better or worse is make dogs that are easy to exploit. They will never quit. They will do 20 reps in a row of something for not even for reinforcement because they did it wrong 20 times and do it that 21st time. And your stock dog is probably going to find something better to do on at least the 10th time, right? So there's, they're worky too, but we have certainly bred for more. I, I don't know if the snoring of this puppy is getting recorded, but it could be. So just telling you guys that if there's snoring. <laughs> I've been listening. It is because I've been listening to it. And it I is, thought it was something playing with a toy, but that's a, that's a puppy. It is the classic... So. Face of, of the <laughs> pug boston cross puppy um who's literally in a sherpa bag right next to the microphone so my bad but that's why she's sleeping in quiet so that's fine yeah. um so anyway they just we breed for these traits and i often think we don't know that we're breeding for them but instead we say this dog's good at agility so we're gonna breed this dog and then the things that make him good at agility might be um, a propensity for biting a tug and pulling on it or um, generally speaking, working with the handler. And so we get, you know, when it works really well, we can get a highly sociable dog who's relatively resilient and still very worky. When it doesn't work well, we get all of the worst things that the ranch dogs can have too, but kind of amplified. Um, and again, the <laughs> the snoring comes in right when I pause. Um, again, the one of the traits that I think that we select for in the sport dogs tends to be that physicality towards the handler. So being able to push at and come in, which is woven into our toy play opens the door sometimes for some of their anxiety-based behavior problems to have aggression involved. I think that it would be easier. All of my dogs in my house are pretty lovely, but if I were to rank them on who I think I could push to bite me, the sport dogs are at the top of the list, not the ranch dogs, even though the ranch dogs don't want me to touch them. So what is that? 
<laughs> that <laughs> right? is interesting. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting how when you know we select on certain criteria. So, so you know, we think we're selecting on the dog is a world team dog. Right. But what jumping acting, ability, speed. Yes. yes. Um, but what as you say, what we may actually be selecting on could be something quite, quite different. Um plus there can be the stuff that gets brought along with it, right? Like the noise sensitivity or the epilepsy. Yes. That we are spe- so either we're we're selecting for something we don't realize that we're actually selecting for something else, but it's good, or we're selecting for something, we're actually selecting for something else, and that brings in something bad. It's just, yeah, it's a tough job. It's a mess, and I really <laughs> don't, I don't envy anyone who's trying to do it well. Um, and I think that, you know, you would be smart to look into dogs that were bred to do the thing that you want to be doing. But then further than that, ask questions about their temperament that are very specific. Um, Don't ask, are the dogs sound sensitive? Ask specifically, how is 4th of July in your house? Um, If you're in the United States, ask specifically, if you're hiking in the woods and there are gunshots, what happens? Um, Ask specifically, this is a big one that I have all of my clients who ask me, for these questions to present to breeders, this is a big one. You're walking your dog on a leash on a trail and an off-leash dog approaches with no handler in sight. I mean, we all know this, right? You just hear that he's never friendly. Happens. Right. That never you happens. just hear he's friendly from like the down the trail, right? Yeah. What how does your dog react? What happens? Yeah. Like these ask those specific scenario-based questions because Otherwise, you're not going to get real answers. And here's the biggest issue, in my opinion, that is happening. The breeders don't know the answer because their dogs don't leave their house. That's not, certainly I'm not saying 100% of breeders, but your higher volume breeders who tend to be the accessible ones that you can get a puppy from easily, maybe don't know. They maybe have five, 10 breeding animals, who knows, 20. I, you know, I don't care how many they have. I don't even care how many litters they're producing. I do care if they can't answer those questions. Um, and these are, I think that's one of the issues. And I'm not, a rancher is not necessarily going to be better. I mean, if I had asked Iggy's breeder, who's a cattle rancher in Idaho, any, she would have laughed at me. I would have said, how's the 4th of July? She would have been like, I, the dogs are in the barn. Dogs are in the on barn. trail walks? We don't go on trail also, walks. Right. Like, what do you mean a dog approaches on the trail? She this probably is, would have been I like, know, there's no well, yeah. <laughs> right. She would have been like, well, you know, when so and so, when the farrier comes, he brings his corgi and that's fine. You know, like that would have been, yeah. you know, that's the kind of answer you might get. And I think if we're breeding these dogs for sports, we need better answers than that. We need to know them better than that. We And we need to push for better temperament so that the if for no other reason, so the dog's lives are easier, the dogs that have to then go live in those conditions. Yeah. Yeah, so not that breeding high volume is necessarily wrong. I think you and I are both on the same page that it can be done well. Yes. But one of the ways that it has to be done well is that you have to actually know your breeding stock. And yes, and them, know them. them to agility trials and to yeah. and live with them like pets. Because if you're not, you don't know them. And 
I, I'm sure that that would be irritating to some people to hear because they would say, you know, how dare you? Of course, I know the dogs that I'm producing. Um, but I'm, if you don't hike them on a trail in the woods, then you don't know what happens if a deer walks across the trail and you don't know what happens if off-leash gold retriever, who's lovely, comes running right up, right? Right. And in my life, I need my dogs to roll with that. I need my dogs to recall off of wildlife easily, and I need them to accept rude dogs that approach on the trail. <laughs> and yeah. it's when once they're in my possession, I take responsibility for those things, and I train very hard, and I work very hard on those things. But before they're in my possession, I'm asking those questions. And if you don't know the answer, then I'm probably going to move on. Which is a place that I've gotten to gradually over time. <laughs> yeah, well, and one of the things I say to people is, you know, get a dog from a breeder who's, you know, where the parents are doing all the things that you want your dog to do. Yeah. So if you want your dog to go on hikes, get it from someone who takes their dog on hikes. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's nothing wrong with someone breeding dogs and basically all the dogs do is hang out on the property and you know yep. and produce if that's what you want to do with your dogs right then that works great right i have right i have an increasing number of clientele um whose dogs are working line belgians so working Tervier and malinois um the black ones that i can't pronounce <laughs> um, yeah I, so I, I can't spell it either so Right, so it starts the G. The, the G ones. Um, so yeah. <laughs> the G ones. Like I haven't had a Lycanois, which is the curly ones, and I probably said that wrong. Whatever, working line Belgians, and a lot of them are from kennel type situations. The owner, the breeders, have a kennel. The dogs do not live in the home. They come out. They work. They go back in the kennel, and the dogs are perfectly content and wonderful with that. And they really struggle in a home environment. Um, and then not to mention the fact that they struggle in an agility environment too, because it's really not what they're made for. But these are the, you know, when I, I had a pet dog, actually way back, I had a pet dog client that I was in her home and she had purchased this import dog that she had gone. She had seen the situation the dogs were living in. It was a working kennel. These dogs had never been in a home. They come out, they bite the guy wearing the sleeve, they go back in. And she wants this dog to live in her home and be a delightful family pet. And he's really, really struggling with it because if he's not in the kennel, he's on. And he wants to bite something or he wants to attack, he wants to dig at something or he wants to chew something or he wants to, you know, bother her old dog because that's where they live. So really asking the questions of how do the dogs live, where do the dogs live, and and those real questions of if somebody approaches you on the trail, what happens? Um, and you can tell if they're speculating, too. You can tell if they're like, <laughs> well, oh, yeah. my dog would probably, you know, he wouldn't like that very much. But And they don't know. And that's okay if that's okay. But if it's not, it's not. And one of my big questions now that I have this household with a ton of dogs in it is, do all of your dogs live in your house peacefully? That's it. That's actually my number one question now, because I need it. With eight dogs, I would think so. <laughs> seven and a temporary. <laughs> yeah, seven and a temporary. I, I have three, and sometimes I make jokes, and my husband is like, nope. I, <laughs> no was, I was lucky to go to three. We are not going to four. <laughs> 
So we have talked a great deal about border collies. What what would you think about a dog that was only part border collie? You know, I think that sport mixes are a great idea. Um, I don't understand all of them. I don't understand the purpose of all of them, but it's not necessarily for me to understand. Um, there are a lot of border collie people who are very upset about the fact that border collies are being bred with a lot of other things. But I think, you know, it's it's stemming from necessity. It's stemming from people who would like maybe those worky traits and then maybe some other traits of some other dogs. Toning it down a little maybe bit. Maybe soften it a little bit with something else. Um, maybe soften it, maybe make the size different, maybe make the coat type different. Maybe, you know, there are a lot of different things and I fully, fully support anybody who is breeding dogs with integrity and with a mind for the health and temperament of these dogs. And, um, and just because I wouldn't necessarily select many of the sport mixes doesn't mean that I have a problem with it. And I think that I'd be surprised if you didn't find me with one eventually. I'm casually looking at a few because I would, I do think I might like something smaller. I'm not sure. Um, but, but generally here's speaking, <laughs> here's the thing about 35 pound dogs. You can pick them up if you need to. That yes. is my thing. You can tuck it under one arm. If you need to. <laughs> well, and my border collies, my two, my two of the six are both under 35 pounds. So they are nice sized dogs. I'm a little bit interested in this possibility of, you know, if our lives ever return to a semblance of normal again, a dog riding in a plane, in an airplane cabin with me in a bag. So that nice. that's kind of, that's kind of my thought. But yeah. essentially, um, if we're all being honest and we're all utilizing the tools that we have as far as health testing and as far as, you know, I think health testing is wonderful, but I think treating it like the be all end all is a big mistake in, in dog breeding. Health testing is great, but I actually think of it as a bare minimum, not a, you know, not a gold standard at all. I think it's a bare minimum. And then from there, we need to look at things like epilepsy, like sound sensitivity. Like when we're involving border collies, if you're going to cross them with something else, in my opinion, it should be to improve the situation. And it's the way that the situation can be improved is in those areas, in my opinion, not necessarily other areas. Because when you get a good border collie, in my opinion, there's nothing better. There's no better sport dog and there's no better companion in my world, in my opinion, when they are mentally sound and their needs are met. I think that there's nothing better than them. So if you're gonna cross it with something else, what I'd like to see is a reduction in those problems, the reduction in um, obsessive, uh, well, I guess technically we just call them compulsive disorders in dogs and not obsessive compulsive disorders, but, you know, maybe a reduction in some of those compulsive behaviors like light, light chasing, shadow chasing, um, maybe a reduction in noise sensitivity and reactivity. That would be a big, big one for me. Um, and then, of course, utilizing breeds that don't also have a high incidence of epilepsy would be 
a good a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. So I think it can be great. I think it can be a really great thing. Yeah. Well, I I that's my dream as well to at some point have that sort of perfect mix of some herding and some retriever and some mm -hmm. small and get something <laughs> something worky but sweet. So. Worky but sweet, which a lot of the sport bred border collies really are. A lot of the border oh, yeah. collies in general, not just sport bred, are worky Sorry, but sweet. Sorry, worky, sweet, and not crazy. How about that? Oh, there we go. Worky, <laughs> sweet, not not weird. Not uh, yeah. A little weird is okay. A little weird. I mean, I'm, I'm weird. I'm weird. <laughs> no, we're all weird here. We're all weird here. We can call yeah. that can be the title of the episode. <laughs> That's a good one because I was thinking, God, what can I call this? I was like, I want to call it like We're breeding healthy here. border collies, and I was like, but she's not a border collie breeder, so I might, I might get in trouble with that. <laughs> <You might. laughs> We're all a little weird here. There we we're go. We're all a little weird here. How about border collies? We're all we're all weird. We're all a little weird. Um, thank you so much, Sarah. So if, I mean, we've sort of dropped a lot of hints about how people might want to find you other places. Where could they do that? Best place is my website, which is thecognitivecanine.com, and canine is spelled out. Um, everything is there. And then I certainly have, obviously, social media. Um, the Facebook page is The Cognitive Canine, <laughs> and um, as well as Cogdog Radio has its own Facebook page. But if you go to the website, there's one of those handy little things that you can subscribe. And if you do that, you will get updated on the podcast anytime I write a blog anytime um, I put out information on new courses and things like that so the website's probably the the easiest place to go perfect all right and I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well well thank you so much this has been really interesting thank you so much it's been it's one of my favorite things to talk about of course border yes. collies <laughs> yeah I always like talking about border collies too. <laughs> all right thanks again Sarah thank you Hey friends, some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing the podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice, and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Sarah Espinosa Socal. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the Functional Dog Collaborative, check out functionalbreeding.org. Enjoy your dogs.